right down the street in Brick. Sunday nights right now, 4 o'clock at the Orthodox Church of the Annunciation. We've been meeting, so um, thank you for all your prayers and keeping us lifted up. And uh, we'll just continue to share updates about what the Lord is doing in Brick as the weeks go by. So today we are continuing our uh, sermon series uh, of belonging. And this week we are talking about belonging to a mission. And um, I wrestled with kind of where to go. Um, if, you, if you've come here for any length of time, then it's really, uh, it should be no news to say that you're a missionary and go and share the good news of Jesus to your neighbors. We talk about this all the time, all the time. And so um, I, I was praying, like, where do I take a sermon like this um, that would be challenging and, and uh, it would push us and hopefully shape us? And um, I started asking myself some questions. You know, what mission do we belong to? But then I started asking questions like, why do we belong to this mission? But the big one that I got stuck with is, what are we calling people into? Like when we share Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody else, um, the question would be, what are you calling them into? What are you calling them into? Uh, a couple of, um, this a couple months ago, we were at, in the morning we have devotions with our kids, and um, sometimes, I don't think Abel's here, no he's not, I'll embarrass him. My seven-year-old, he asked really good questions, just really intuitive, right? And so one day he, over breakfast, he goes, Daddy, what is God about? I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, um, you know, when will God do stuff and then finally say, I'm done, and then stop doing stuff? I was like, you know, I get the nature of his question. That's a pretty interesting question. It's like, and he's like, and what, it, and what he's doing, like, what is he about doing, and when will he stop? I was like, man, that's really interesting. So today, I, I'm going to answer that question, because the answer to that question is going to be what we are calling people into. What is God about? What is he up to? What is the end goal of his work, right? What are we calling people into? Because that is the answer. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 19 and 20 today. I want to sum up kind of a little background story, the backdrop here, before we get into one of Jesus's more interesting parables that he gave during his ministry. Um, this is, uh, I don't know, maybe about midpoint, maybe getting toward the latter end of Jesus's ministry when he was on this earth. And this guy comes up, he's called this young man, he's uh, maybe a ruler or some kind of leader in the community, but he's uh, wealthy, right? And so he has these questions, right? You know, why do you, uh, he comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do? What good deeds must I do? This is in Matthew 19, verses 16. I won't read through all of this, I'll kind of sum it up. He says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, um, basically, you need to keep the commandments um, if you want to enter into life. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, et cetera, and so forth. Some of the Ten Commandments. And the young man says, all right, I've done that. What else is left? Jesus says, well, you need to, um, whatever is blocking you between, um, uh, it, well, basically, Jesus says, you know, there's something in your life that is keeping you from fully giving everything over to, um, to God, and for this 
young, rich, young ruler. It was his material, his wealth, his stuff. And so he said, get rid of that block in your life because for you, that's, that's just your stumbling block. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. The story goes, the guy walks away, he's bummed because he's not really willing to do that. The disciples are there. They witnessed all of these things. And um, as, you know, Jesus says some more stuff, but a little conversation happens. But then the disciples kind of watch what happened. They see this guy wasn't willing to walk away from his life and all the things that he had in order to follow Jesus. And so Peter, being the good, you know, I don't know, religious guy that he was, he was like, Jesus, let me remind you, because these disciples, they literally did leave everything. I mean, they walked away from their families, their careers, their jobs. When Jesus called them, they just was like, all right, and they just went and left everything behind. And Jesus was like, or Peter said, Jesus, let me remind you that we've walked away from everything, right? He says in verse um, 27, it says, Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and have followed you. Because remember, Jesus told this rich young guy, you'll have treasure in heaven if you do this. And Peter says, well, we've done that, Jesus. What do we get, right? And then Jesus says in the next few verses, you'll get rewards, right? One day in heaven, you'll be sitting on thrones, and his apostles have some pretty special positions after um, this life in the next age. Um, but he ends in verse 30 by saying something interesting. He kind of blows up their little you know, world of thinking. He says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last in the last first. Then he goes into this very interesting parable. I want to read this through. And again, we're answering the question, what are we calling people into? And you'll see where I'm going here in a minute. Chapter 20 begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about, about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and to them he said, you, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went along. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, later in the day, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because nobody's hired us. And he said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, which was about a day's wage. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose or what belongs to me? Or, you do, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, this is a strange parable. Like, where is Jesus getting with this parable? And what, he gave this in response to Peter saying, what do we get, Jesus? Look at all we've done. And then he tells this parable. Now, 
economically, if this was real life and you had a business and you treated your employees this way, you would have a mutiny and probably be murdered by your employees, right? Um, this would never work. Like, this isn't what would happen in real life. Like, I can't show up to a shift and work one hour and get the same pay as working eight hours, right? It doesn't work. Um, even in this ancient uh, time, that kind of thinking, uh, it obviously was not how things were. Now, there are rewards. Um, well, yeah, so in this parable, what we see is these guys all receive the same payment, but for different amounts of work. And so I think, well, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time to dive into a lot of deep, you know, things here with this parable, but what Jesus is trying to tell them is saying, if you think following me is about what you get, is about the rewards you get, which, by the way, the Bible's clear. There are rewards in heaven. Um, but, but, you know, afterwards, if you have more questions about the rewards, we, we can chat more. But um, the rewards that we get um, are not really described very thoroughly. Um, there's not a huge amount of information about what these rewards are really looking like. It's called treasure in heaven, you know, he uh, treasure one, you know, in, in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus talks most about rewards in the New Testament, but he doesn't really explain them. But a lot of the rewards are rewards that we get in the next age after this life. But the parable shows that those rewards are given out to us at the authority of Christ, not about what you have done. It won't be equivalent to the amount of work that you have done. In other words, um, Peter, who has given his whole life, you know, he walked away from everything. He may get the same reward as the guy with his dying breath confesses Jesus and finds himself in the heaven. This parable is a tough parable to read. It's like, that's, that's interesting. But I think Jesus says it because he's trying to hint, if this is why you're following me, you're going to be disappointed. I can give you whatever reward I want, and it's not going to be equivalent to what you are doing for me. I have authority over this. And so I mention this because um, evangelical Christianity, um, I, I grew up down south in Georgia, born and raised, um, and this is really kind of everywhere. When we speak about Christianity to others, we often um, share it in the sense of, you know, what do we get out of following Jesus? What do we receive because we're following Jesus? Now, um, theologically, the nature, biblically, the nature of the rewards is not so much described in a lot of terms of this life, it's described in the next age, but often we, when we share the gospel, share the good news with somebody, we don't make that distinction, and we are offering, sometimes offer a life of following Jesus that is more sounds like what we call the American dream, or not really the American dream, but what we call, uh, whatever our culture is, is striving for, like um, a sick-free, a pain-free, and comfortable existence, um, generally a life that's always optimistic, a life that good things are always coming your way, God is on your side, right? So you'll have this better life. Um, and that kind of life 
really our culture tries to prop up. Um, the pharmaceutical industry is just huge today because every little illness that we have, every little tiny headache or this or that, they're trying to give us something to make all the pain go away. We, we can't handle pain in our culture, right? And so, but this is mixed into our Christianity to where we think that God doesn't want us to feel pain. What do you mean? He's, he's here to, to get rid of those things. So by following Jesus, you're going to have this kind of life where God gets to start taking away all the bad things out of your life and giving you all these good things. And this is, all, this is how I was raised. And maybe if you spent any time hearing anything about Christianity, maybe you've heard similar things. Now, I want to tell you this, um, and we'll, God, we'll be diving into this for the next few minutes. Some people, Christian or non-Christian, honestly, in this regard, some people are going to have a life full of suffering. And some of you here, I know some of your stories, and you've had a life full of just things that you've, you've not even caused that have happened to you, people sinned against you, your parents, your siblings, something happened to them that's like, you've had a life full of suffering. Some of you have not had a life full of suffering. Um, my life, I, I've not had um, a lot of death, a lot of you know sickness or things like that. It hasn't really um, come into my family's history thus far. Uh, compared to other people's, I've had a very pretty, um, you know, pain-free kind of life in that regard, emotionally, my family, all those things. We haven't really had that, but some of you here don't share that kind of story. Some of you have like a mixture of the two. But the whole idea is that Christianity does not promise either or. You're not going to find a verse that says, if you follow Jesus, you're not going to have these bad things. You'll be given these good things only in this life. You're not going to find those verses. Um, the book of Job is a great example of this. If you read the book of Job, you have Job. And he is living this life. He has wealth. He has a large family. Um, he's holy. He's loving his God. He's always giving sacrifices and praying for his family. And he is really just devoted the entirety of his, of his existence, according to Scripture, as best as he possibly can as a fallen person, to the Lord. And you have this weird, crazy scene in heaven where Satan, the accuser, as his name means, is standing before God. And he says, Job has this you know, wonderful existence and his holiness and his love and his sincerity towards God. As Satan's talking, he says, it's only because you've given him this really nice life. Take away that really nice life and see what Job has left, right? In other words, Job's faith is only because of what, he, what, you, you know, what he's received from you. So Satan says, let's take that away if you think his faith is so strong, God, and let's see what Job has left. And so one of the big questions of the book of Job is what was Job's motivation for his faith and his sincerity and love for God, right? Was it only to get those good things for God or is it because he wanted God himself regardless of what came his way? The remainder of the book was wrestling with this question. Why would a loving God... Rob Job of so much good things. What could possibly be the purpose, the reason? His friends commonly made the accusation, Job, man, like what did you do? You must have really screwed up somewhere. Like tell me, confess it. Get, you know, you must have really jacked everything up because God is, 
he's punishing you for something. And Job's like, I haven't done anything, guys. Like, I, no, like, I'm, I'm, there's nothing here. Like, I'm, stop bothering me. Like, get away. Like, I'm not, you know. As you see this conversation just for chapters after chapter after chapter. And Job is like, I'm telling you, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know what's going on either. But this is how we think, right? We think God needs to give us good things when those good things are taken away. We're like, God, where are you at? You were in the good things, but now I don't know where you are today. And again, we're answering the question, what are we calling people to? So here's a great litmus test for you and for I to understand kind of this conversation. All right. This is a great litmus test to understand two things um, that I'm about to say. This, this test will show us what you think you primarily get out of the Christian life. I think this is, it can generally tell us the answer. Um, what, what you think you get primarily out of the Christian life and the nature of what we, what we receive in the Christian life. Now, I think when I was wrestling with this, it was like, how do I, like, you know, uh, somehow give something out to kind of expose in all of our hearts oh, this is what I think that I, I need to be getting from the Lord only or primarily, um, while at the same time communicating what we should be expecting um, from Jesus in our love and relationship from him. The best way to do that, I think, in my, you know, whatever opinion, is what we pray for and how we pray. When we go before the Lord, what are we praying for regularly? Now, the way to look at the nature of what we should, I think, be praying for, a good guide at least, to guide us in our life of prayer is Paul's prayers in the New Testament. Um, before I say anything else, I'm going I'm to look at the things Paul prayed for. And honestly, I hope, I, mean, well, I, just, I, just wanna, I don't know, hope, I guess, hopefully you're, you're here and you're saying, yeah, I, I can associate with this way Paul prays. I, I hope that's the case because honestly, for me, often it's, it's not, but this, this student um, at Regent University, he compiled about 56 of Paul's prayers. I'm not going to read 56 prayers, don't worry. Um, 56 of Paul's prayers written in the New Testament, and he compiled them into 11 categories. I'll read a couple for you, but I'll read all these different categories and some of the scriptures that go along if you're taking notes. Um, the, this is how Paul prayed, and this is what he prayed for. If you're praying for the church or for other Christians or, or, or your friends and people in the faith, um, you're, you're praying for, you're kind of interceding for them, saying, God, we're asking that you give this person this. And that reveals what we're expecting of God to deliver to us on how this relationship works in this life. Okay, but listen to how Paul prayed. These are the things that he primarily prayed for. Number one, for godly living. Philippians 1, verses 9 says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Um, this is the nature of the Christian life. What is he praying for? Godly living. The next thing he prayed for, ministry opportunity and success. He prayed, he says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
Paul was writing this in jail. Was he asking for deliverance? No. He was asking for more ministry opportunities as he was in jail because of ministry opportunities. Right? For increased knowledge of the Lord. And increased knowledge in many different ways of the Lord in Ephesians 1.17, of the Lord's will in the Colossians 1.19, increased knowledge of his love, Ephesians 3.17, of the hope, increased knowledge of the hope of his calling, Ephesians 1.18, increased knowledge of the riches we have in Christ, Philemon 1, verse 6, um, of his power, knowledge of his power, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. Um, for more love, First Thess- Second Thessalonians 3, 5. He prayed for grace and for peace to be amongst the church. And around 20 times he prayed that prayer. He prayed for Christians to be in one accord. Romans 15, 5 through 6. He prayed for, for other people's salvation, the, the Jews. Romans chapter 10. He prayed for, for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Ephesians 4, 3, 14 through 17. He prayed for more hope to be in our hearts. Romans 15, 13. And he prayed for the fullness of God to be present in our lives. Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19. I read these things through you, to you to show you that um, often when, when I'm in circles and I'm praying with other Christians and we say, what can we pray for? It's usually saying, I'm sick. My family member's sick. Um, I have a big trial in my life. Um, you know, we're having a hard time here. Can you pray that God can bring us easement to this situation or some kind of resolution to this situation? Can he heal my family member? Can he heal me? Um, and all these. And that's, if I'm fair, 70, like some kind of needs-based prayer, 70 to 80%, I don't know, of the, of the types of prayers that are given when I'm around other Christians and we ask for prayer. Now, the New Testament prescribes the need to pray for the sick, right? It's not like something we don't need to pray for. James 5 is very clear. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If anybody, is anyone cheerful? Let him rejoice. Sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So, of course, if you're sick, like, we need to pray. But... My whole point in reading this to you is to show you the amount of prayers given is the nature of these prayers is not so much heal this person. The nature of it really is going to be in the midst of this trial, God grant them godly living. In the midst of this trial, grant them increased knowledge of your love. Give them a deeper hope in the midst of what they're going through. When Paul was in chains, he was writing these things, saying, pray for me. I want to know the riches of Christ even while I am in chains, right? If we could see the scales of the content of such prayers in the New Testament, it would be prayers for the sick and healing are there, but way more of the other saying, God, sustain me in the midst of hardship and any kind of trial that I may be in. The nature of the vast majority of prayer in the New Testament for these issues would be not only a reversal of them that they may cease to be, but rather more so the ability to face whatever is in front of you with a fruit of the Spirit. Much more the latter than, much more the former than the latter. So do you think that Jesus came here to primarily only heal you of your sicknesses, to give you relief from trials, or to bring you happy things? Um, to bring happy things your way rather than challenging difficulties 
and life. And again, for answering the question, what are we inviting people to? If we are communicating that Christianity is this easy life, that God's going to grant you these things and give you good things and take away the bad things, then people, when they come into the faith, are going to be extremely sorely disappointed. And their understanding of who God is is going to be really messed up. They will have no foundation of how to handle anything hard that comes in their life. And they'll only be looking for the good things to say, that's where God is. And anything that is, is challenging or, or difficult to say, God, where are you? And that is the foundation of what their faith is going to be looking like. So I'm going to go back to the question, what are we inviting people into? Right? Um, any kind of rewards that we receive, we started off saying God has, Christ has the authority to give you whatever rewards he wants. So we're not, we're not following Christ because ultimately what we are going to get, some kind of reward. That's not why we're following Christ. So I hope that we can kind of draw an X on that one, put it over here, and move on to the conversation. The next part of the conversation is, well, we're not following Christ just to get this good life. Maybe you'll have a good life, and maybe you won't. There's no guarantee that either or will happen. Whatever comes your way is because God has ordained it for some specific reason. According to the book of Job, we're probably not going to truly understand why he ordains what he ordains in your life. But both may be present, one or the other. But again, um, what are we inviting people into? And Paul's prayers showed us some of the realities of what we're inviting people into. And I can sum it up in, kind of, uh, in, in these words. We are inviting people into a faith that can fill you with the fullness of the Spirit, that will endow you with supernatural abilities to face the most immense suffering and the biggest challenges life will ever throw at you. Amen. It will also give you the power to enjoy all the blessings God gives you, but you will have the power to not find yourself bowing down to those blessings, but rather thanking the one who decided to give you such blessings. And how is this the case? The fullness of the spiritual life is yours as you are today, reconciled back to your loving Father through his Son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, who is making your very life today a shadow of the redemption that he is one day bringing to this world. This gives us the ability to have, a, to have joy in our life, a joy that supersedes situational circumstances. It supersedes this world because we know that our lives are not an end to themselves. Our death does not simply cause us to vanish away into nothingness, but rather one day you and I will be raised to newness of life, to immortality, and witness the transformation of this world becoming heaven itself when heaven and earth meet when Christ returns, where God will sit enthroned forever and ever. And we will live in eternal bliss with our loving Savior forever and ever. Thus now, we have nothing to fear in this world. We have every reason to glory in Jesus Christ, the giver of our very salvation. We now strive to conform our very lives to mirror the life of Jesus. And we give the world a glimpse of the salvation to come by telling everyone to be saved today by believing on Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins, saved from the torment and the slavery of sin, saved from the coming wrath of God against us, saved from our very corrupt and human natures, and renewed into what God always meant for humanity, 
to look and live like his son, Jesus. And this is a free gift from God the Father. It is unearned. That's what we're inviting people into. So next time you're sharing the gospel, pay attention to your words, right? We're inviting people into that life that is not guided by our circumstances, um, that is not uh, obsessed with getting going good things for God, not the bad. We're inviting people into a life that whatever comes your way, you have no fear. We say we know that Jesus one day is coming, and that's what our hope is tied up into um, and rewards we have there are wonderful and great, but ultimately I want to go there because Jesus is there and he has saved me today. And so I want to go back to um, Abel's question from the back end of the sermon. Um, my son Abel, when he asked, what is Christianity about? Um, if you could sum up, and I, was, I really took the challenge. I was like, all right, how can I sum this up for a seven-year-old in like one sentence? Like what is God about what is he doing? What is this whole grand plan of salvation really about? And one sentence, and I was thinking, and I, I think I found a, a decent response. Not there's a response, but there's obviously multiple. But I think a good way to respond, what is God up to? What are we inviting people into when we tell people the good news of Christianity? What is a summary kind of statement of, of what we are offering through the, the death and resurrection of Christ to others? Revelation 21.5 says this. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God is making all things new. That's the very mission that we belong to. We are a part of God's mission to make all things new. And today, it is happening one person at a time. As we share this good news and somebody, the Lord works in their heart and they repent of their sins and they believe in Jesus Christ and they receive the newness of life, God has continued his work in making all things new through that new person right there. And it happens again and it happens again and it will continue to be happening until one day he returns and he wipes away all sin and death in this world and he does make all things new. So I want to look at, we read this earlier in our time of uh, worship through song. This is the last words of Christ when he was here in the gospel of Matthew before he ascended back into heaven. Matthew 28, it says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our call. That is our mission. So I pray as we leave this place today, that we can all be missionaries in our cities and be a part. He has called us to be a part of this grand renewal program for this world. And so let's do our part and pray that the Spirit would make our work effective as His church grows and grows from those who do not yet know Jesus. And so let us pray. Lord, I pray, would you fill us with a zeal, a fire 
Lord, with this good news of the gospel, the good news of what you have done, the good news that whatever is before us, whether good or bad, we can find the fullness of joy. And that we can live with the hope of what is to come and that we have nothing to fear in this life. And Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you can give us the power to live such a supernatural life on this world. You've given us authority over all spiritual um, darkness on this world. Lord, that we can defeat sin in our life. Or we can grow in your likeness in ways that we can never do without the help of your spirit. This is such good news, Lord, that our sins forgiven, that we are reconciled to you. There is no better news for this world. Lord, empower us with a passion to tell others in this broken and hurting and dying world that salvation is available for them. Lord, make all things new. Do it quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.